Amen. Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you'll open up the book of Galatians, we're continuing in our series. In the book of Galatians, we are finishing up chapter three this morning. As Zach said, thank you all for being here on kind of a gloomy spring break time change Sunday. Man, it was like, is it already time to get up? It was felt so early, right? Um, but we are grateful that you are here. Well, I was, as I was thinking on us gathering this weekend, um, I think a lot of times we take for granted or we don't really think about really what the church is, what we're doing here, why we're here together, like what it is that... Um, what it is that we're trying to do as we gather as God's people in the church. And as I was thinking about this, uh, a memory from my childhood came up because what we're doing here is not, um, is not an event. It's really like a safe harbor. It's a place where we can recenter and be regrounded and be re-reminded of who God is and how he's made us and what he's called us to be. And we get to regroup for that which is ahead for the week's weeks to come. And I was reminded of a memory of my childhood. I grew up in Michigan. I grew up in a suburb uh, north of Detroit. And uh, my family and I, we used to, a, a popular place to go in Michigan um, to go vacation was uh, called Mackinac Island. Anyone ever been there? Everyone? Oh, right. One. Anyone? Two. Anyone else, anyone else ever heard of Mackinac Island? Anyway. Okay. Couple people. It's beautiful. It's, on, it's in Lake Huron. It's this beautiful place. I remember we would go get little candies on the little boardwalk that was along the lake, and we would sit and eat at this restaurant. I can't remember uh, the restaurant, but I remember the candies, right? That's me as a kid. It's like they're in these little tin, and you just eat them. And I remember there was always, it was a big boating culture, obviously right there on the lake. And so uh, fishing boats were coming into harbor, uh, there was a big sailboat culture, these beautiful sailboats as the sun was going down. Uh, the, my parents were eating and I was eating little candies out of the tin. And I just remember all these boats coming in and people sort of getting off these boats and they were just so full of joy. And uh, from the day that they had just had either sailing or, or fishing. But I also remember watching and seeing the captains and the deck crews in the hands of those ships were, it wasn't done for them when they got into harbor. Really, the work had just begun. So all the people that had just participated in the fishing trips and in the sailing, uh, they came in to harbor after a long day out, and there was so much work to be done. Uh, the nets had to be mended. There was paint from getting scuffed up coming into harbor that needed to be fixed up. Um, the sails needed to be tended to and sewn. There was work on the boat that had, the boat had to be cleaned, it had to be washed, it had to, all of these things and they were busy about their work but the beauty of coming into harbor was that it was a safe place to land and anchor and get done all the things that needed to get done as they were out at sea. And as I was thinking about this memory as, as a child, um, and I think about God's people in the church, I think that's a fitting analogy for us, is that this is what we're doing. Um, I just want to remind us here, um, you faithful ones, the spring breakers that come on time change, right? I don't have to re remind, I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit, but I want to thank you and encourage you because church is not an event that you go to. Church is a people that we are, and it's as, as, as it were, we, were coming, we come into harbor, we're beat up, we're battered, we're bruised by the world in the week that we had. Um, the, the world uh, 
is ferocious and wanting to chew us up and get us a trip up in sin and rebellion and forget about God. But here we have a few moments to come into safe harbor, as it were, and open up and learn from all that we need from God so that we are ready to go back out tomorrow into the open waters. And yes, we're gonna get beat up again. Yes, the world is gonna keep coming. The waves are gonna keep crashing down on us. But that's why we come to church. We come back not because it's a cool event to come to, but because we're a people that need to hear from God and we need to rally and we need a safe harbor amongst the harsh storms of reality to come and re-remind us what is true and to shore up that which is broken so that we can go back out stronger. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And the process by which we do that is we sing songs that remind us of everything that's true of God. That's why we sing. We don't sing, yes, Zach is awesome, and I would just listen to him sing, and the band is great, but we churches sing collectively together, not because they're just catchy, great songs, but because of the words we're singing are true of who God is, and it reminds our hearts, and it reminds our neighbors that we're not in it alone. And we also do that by coming in and we open up the word of God, and we let it bear weight on our lives and change us and mend the nets of our hearts and sew up the sails of our lives, as it were, so that we're ready to go tomorrow into the world in which he's called us to as a light in a dark place. Um, That's what we're doing as a church. That's why we do it week in. That's why it's the Lord's Day. And we do it week in and week out on a Sunday because it reminds us of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do it until he come, he's coming again, right? And so the world has a lot to say about our Bible. Uh, turn on the news. Or it's even just indifferent. It's like, I can't believe you even think about the Bible. Isn't that some antiquated thing that no one does anymore? But in our passage today in Galatians, in chapter 3, at the very end... Uh, there's a lot to get through. We're going to try to um, take maybe a 10,000 foot view because there is a lot of different things going on in these verses we're going to cover. But at the very end, if we get to it, Lord willing, uh, in verse 22, we're going to discover that the scriptures that God declares that the whole world, the world that says, I can't believe you even listen to this thing, or this thing is irrelevant, the words of this are not true, the Bible has something to say about the world. And the Bible says that the world uh, is a prisoner. That the world that says, this thing, don't listen to it, has nothing to say to you, it has nothing of value, it is uh, an old antiquated thing, and if you want, maybe just take some great principles and throw out the rest. The Bible says that that world that says that about this, that has always said this about this, is actually imprisoned by its sin. It's a prisoner of sin. The world is a prisoner and its dungeon is its own sinful rebellion against God. And that's uh, the murky waters that lie ahead of us as we leave this place, week in and week out. The Bible calls us to be lighthouses of God's grace, to proclaim that Jesus and his grace and his mercy has come and he has come to set captives free. 
So if the world is prisoned and prisoned by their sin, the church declares in no uncertain terms that there is only one that can set prisoners free and his name is Jesus and he has come and he has conquered and defeated death and we as God's people don't claim ourselves as savior, we claim another because we couldn't do it ourselves. We're not so great that we figured it out. We just cling to the coattails of the Lord Jesus Christ and he lets us in on his merits. That's what we're doing here. And so Paul, in this letter to the Galatian churches, it's really this collective of churches, as you will, is ringing the bell, is ringing that bell that Jesus is Lord, and it is by uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus that you have salvation. You don't have to add anything else to it, because these spies have sort of come in, and they have um, declared that you need Jesus plus all these other things. You need Jesus... uh, plus your politics. You need Jesus plus Bible Belt religious activities. You need Jesus plus anything. And Paul says, that's not the gospel at all. That's not it at all. Jesus plus something else equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I've heard it said before. Meaning his righteousness alone is all we need to gain acceptance into the family of God. That's why we can sing the things that we sing. And they be true. Because we couldn't do all those things, but he did. That's why he's deserving of more and more praise. Now what's interesting is that the obvious, wayward, rebellious person that hears that I can have full acceptance from God... And I don't have to earn it. I can just receive the free gift of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that hears that, that's just wayward and sinful and has no really righteous ground to stand on, they hear that and say, that's incredible. Praise God. My life is a wreck as it is. And he will look at me and he will grant to me his righteousness. Even though I didn't deserve it, all I have to do is receive him by faith and believe. Yes, The wayward, rebellious sinner hears that and loves it, and it is the most wonderful news they've ever heard. But on the flip side, as we've seen in Galatians, as we've been walking through, the self-righteous religious person hears that. Or I think you could even maybe put in there, the southern Bible belt religious person hears that and says, wait a minute, are you telling me that this person who's clearly doesn't have their life together, is not as good as me, has not made good choices like me, has not lived their life in line with the moral southern uh, bless your heart code that I've lived my life by, is just as favored in the kingdom of God because of Jesus that me? Yes, that's right. That is offensive. And that's what Paul is waging war against. And that's what's so offensive to you and I here in this culture. Wait a minute, what? And that's why Paul is addressing this because that type of thinking had found its way and crept its way and made its bed in these churches in Galatia. And these group of people were saying, well, you just gotta do this plus this and then God will love you. Paul's like, no, that's not the gospel. Salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So here we have this group that's saying, 
Perform, 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 and God will be pleased with you. And Paul is standing and ringing the bell and saying, God has provided, God has provided, God has provided. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else and nothing of your own merit. John Stott, great theologian, um, Anglican theologian, he wrote, had a statement explaining it this way. The gospel is not good advice to man, but it is good news about Christ. Not an invitation for us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. I love that. That's the gospel. So the question arises in the midst of all of this that Paul is addressing very strongly, by the way, in this letter to Galatians. This is Paul like on fire angry, um, and so Paul, throughout this letter, he's getting all these voices that are saying, well, if that's true, then what about this? And so that's why Paul is addressing all of these questions that are arising with these people that are saying, if it's really by grace alone, well, what does that mean for, and it's primarily to this group of Jews or Judaizers as they were. And so really, this is the whole um, the whole of chapter three is Paul addressing these, these kind of questions that are saying, well, if it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then what about the law? What about the Ten Commandments? And uh, Paul addresses that all the way through here. So we're going to quickly look at four statements, and then we'll be done. Um, we're going to look at four statements about the law that Paul addresses, and the very last thing, one statement about faith. Basically, what is all of this that we are going to learn about the law of God as it concerns to the grace of the Lord Jesus mean for our faith in Christ as a church together? Sound good? Got a lot of ground to cover. I don't know if I'll make it. Okay, first statement. The law does not nullify God's promise. Last week, Michael did an awesome job. He unpacked really what this meant, and we focused on uh, uh, Genesis 15, uh, which is this promise that God has given to his people. And this promise is for an inheritance to Abram, or who would later become Abraham, and all of his descendants. Basically, the, God looks at this old man, Abram, and says, all of the nations will be blessed because of you, and your descendants will outnumber the stars in the, in the sky. And there is one coming from your seed that will be a blessing to all the nations, all the nations, not just your nations. And this promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 15 was free, it was unconditional, and it was wonderful. And so here in verse 15, um, in Galatians, Paul is using an illustration from everyday life that explains the fact that the law cannot set aside what promises that God has made in the past. So, um, those, in other words, those who are freely justified by God's grace are added to the family of God, run all the way back to Abram and the promise that God made to him in Genesis chapter 15. The promise of salvation through faith goes all the way back to Abraham. Paul says to this group of people, it says, you got to obey the law. So Paul's building his argument, okay? 
And then Paul points out that verses 15, in verses 15 and 16, what the immediate fulfillment of that promise was. And the immediate fulfillment to that promise was a physical and geographical promise, but the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that Abraham made to Abraham was spiritual in nature. It was a spiritual inheritance, right? And so in verse 16, he begins to unpack that. So when Paul begins talking about the promise that was made, this was not made to seeds, or I think the ESV translation does it say offsprings, NIV says seeds, seed or seeds, offspring or offspring, right? Paul's saying it does not say, it's not plural. It's not talking about just a bunch of people. It's talking about one that will come. The promise of the spiritual inheritance that is made to God's people will come from Abraham's seed, who is Jesus Christ, from his line meaning one person. So the promise, Paul's saying, made to Abraham all the way back was Christ, who by his death and resurrection now make it possible that the entire world could be blessed by this one seed. Not just a nation of people that display God's great character, but that all nations would now enter into the promise of Abraham by one that would come. The seed, not the seeds. So this is the argument Paul is making. This is, this is huge, but some of you are like, well, that seems kind of nitpicky. It's like one letter. Side note, this is important. Paul, the apostle Paul, believes that every single letter and syntax of our Bible is the true word of God. Paul does not believe that the Bible has some general theme and we can learn a few nice things, nice tips and tricks to live good, happy, nice lives for each other. Paul is making an argument about your salvation and my salvation based on one letter, plural or not. Seed or seeds? If it's seeds, if it said that back in Genesis 15, or descendants, we're out. Didn't say that, Paul says. Paul believes, this is the big seminary word, is the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Meaning, every word matters. Every syntax matters. Every grammatical structure in its original manuscript matters. Paul shows us he believes that about the Bible right here. Not some general idea, but every single letter. And he's making an argument to these churches about salvation to you and I, Gentiles, based on that. Isn't that incredible? So Paul is explaining this who everyone is asking, well, what about the law then? What about the law and what about Moses? Doesn't what Moses got later in the Ten Commandments usurp the covenant that God made to Abraham earlier? And then he says, no. Certainly not. The, the arrival of the law did not nullify the promise made to Abraham. It's not like an amendment to a human transaction. It's like in a will. Um, if you die and you have your will, they take out that will, and that's it. It's like your descendants can't come later and be like, whoa, 
I'm going to, and then they might try. And now there's probably some loopholes. Some lawyers going to be like, well, technically you can't. But it, this, is what, this is what you want. This is how it works. And you can't amend it on the back end when you're gone. Paul's making the same analogy, right? He says, to give a human example, verse 15, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it after it's been ratified. It doesn't happen in human contracts and it doesn't happen in the divine plan of God either. He just makes a practical analogy here. So the blessing and the inheritance is based on God's promise, which has not been nullified by the law. Okay, by the Ten Commandments, in other words, by Moses. The promise made to Abraham is not nullified by the law. Point two, well, if that's the case, then what's the point of the law? Why did Moses even come? The law exposes the existence and the extent of sin. Look at verse 19. Why then the law, they ask. Paul's sort of anticipating this question. What then is the purpose of the law? They were like, okay, you've just obliterated like half of our religion here, Paul. What's going on here? Here's Paul's answer. And he says it, it was added, verses 19 through 20. Um, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, Jesus. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Does that sound a little complex? Yeah, it's really complex. In fact, there's about 300 different interpretations of what's going on here in verses 19 and 20 in Galatians 3. And so for the remainder of our time, I'm gonna be walking through all 300 of those. <laughs> Number one, just kidding. I'm glad you guys knew that was a joke. I was kind of worried about that earlier. Um. But what we want to do here is you could go off on many rabbit trails on this. I want to make um, the plain things the main things here, okay? And I think that's important. Um, here's the point that I believe Paul is making to us. Um, he's making that the law was added, the law was given even after the promise made to Abraham because of transgressions. It was added because people were walking away from God. Though the promise was available by faith alone, people were still wayward and walking away from God. And it was added to show humanity, to show men and women what we were really like. In other words, it lifts the lid off of us. You can't hide under the law anymore. It was given to, so that we can know who we really are. Right? The law exposes us for all of our failures and faults when, when confronted with it. Now, many of us in here, we give ourselves pretty high grades on how we're doing in life. No, I think I'm doing fine. You ask anyone, no, I'm doing good, doing fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. That's what all anyone says anymore, unless they're online and they yell at each other. But face to face, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Oh, we're doing pretty good. We are in this uh, evangelical safe bubble. And everything's sort of padded and we're all doing just fine as long as we go to church occasionally. Um, you know, we're, we're doing pretty good. I got a nice job. I got a nice spouse. I got a few nice kids. 
I'm kind of a nice person. Everyone's nice. We're doing just fine, right? Just leave me alone already. Here's the problem. As long as like I'm the reference point to how I'm doing, I'll always be doing just fine. Well, I'm doing just fine. Look at that guy over there. He's doing way worse than me. I'm way better off than he is, right? You can always find someone else worse off than we are. And that's what we all tend to do. Oh, that guy. I'm so glad I'm not like them. I'm doing just fine. The law, though, when we are confronted with who the law says we are, that's an eye-opener. Because here's what the law shows us. It shows us that we are sinful. It shows us that we are rebellious. It shows us uh, that we are guilty as a sinner in the economy of God. It tells us we are under judgment. It tells us we are helpless to fix it ourselves. And it tells us that we cannot make ourselves right with God. And so the law, Paul is saying, is to be proclaimed so that the promise that was made can be understood in all of its beauty. The law condemns our sin. We stand in judgment because of it. And the only thing that is our hope is the promise of God, not ourselves. Um, You see, Paul is not nullifying the law. The place of proclaiming the judgment of God is necessary. But it's very, very unpopular. And oddly enough, it's pretty unpopular even in church today. I mean, you go to like church growth seminars and those things exist in my world, believe it or not. I know it's weird and feels kind of slimy, but those, all, those are out there. And it's like, hey, uh, people come to church to feel good. People want to leave happy. People want to leave like making sure they're, they're great. So whatever you do, pastor, don't give them a bad time. Uh, whatever you do, pastor, don't show them the bits of the Bible. Don't show them the places in the Bible that lift the lid off of happy Johnny and Jane and make them realize, ooh, there's something not right in me. That's not good. That doesn't fill seats. That doesn't put money in the plates. But the Bible tells us something clearly different. It says, if we are wretches in sin, marred in sin, it is better that we discover it. And it is better that we discover the cure for our wretchedness than to live a life as a wretch and be called a hero. That is very unpopular today. But the Bible says, without and outside of Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are wretches. And to call a wretch a hero is to do damage to them long term. Um, Because the consequences are eternal. They're high. The stakes are high. How can God's people sing Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me if we never believe we need saving in the first place. We can. It's just a neat song that we used to sing a long time ago. Um, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is only amazing when you understand 
your great need for saving. Otherwise, Jesus becomes, and this is very popular in today's preaching and church culture, Jesus becomes your co-pilot. Jesus becomes your sidekick. He's really handy to have, but you're the real hero of the story. And so when you need help, you call up your sidekick. Maybe you got kicked in the shin and you're down, and your sidekick can come up with a shield while you regather yourself and you won't launch out. No, Jesus is the hero. He gives you strength and power. He is the reason you stand. That's the story of the scripture. He is not a sidekick. He's the whole point. That's why we gather. The law shows us that Jesus isn't just nice to have around, but he is the one that pays for our transgressions. The law exposes it, and the promise is the seed that was given, Jesus Christ, and it is in him we put our faith and trust and hope. He's our only way out. That's the purpose of the law, Paul is saying. I've heard it said this way. There are very few tears of repentance today because there is very few preaching that wounds. That was convicting to me. There are very few tears of repentance because there is very few preaching that wounds. Good preaching oftentimes brings the law to bear on our hearts and we say, woe is me, Lord, I need a savior. There's an old song, Fleetwood Mac. Anyone remember that band? 1987? A couple, yeah? Yeah. Remember this song? Some, I think they've remixed it since then. It goes like this. I won't sing it. I almost did. I won't sing it. No, no, no. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. You remember that song? It's a great song. That's the way a lot of us are in our walk with the Lord. Pastor, friend, tell me lies, just tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. Even if they're not true, just tell me I'm fine. Send me along. Um, but for the beauty of the gospel, uh, we as a church will not do that. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. Um, the, the place of the law is to lift the lid and say, oh, We need help. We need a Savior. I can't do it on my own. We're lost and we're in need of divine intervention. Third, the law cannot impart spiritual life. Verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, Paul says. For if a law had been given that could give, give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It can impart spiritual life. It just exposes how you really are. Right? We just keep breaking it and it keeps us in jail and it can't give us freedom. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise through faith and belief in Jesus Christ is life. Here's what the Bible, here's what Paul just says about us. We are in jail because we're lawbreakers. Our sin has imprisoned us. We cannot get out. What can? The promise that God gave Abraham, that the just shall live by faith. Christ. And when we discover that we're in deep trouble, 
the person throwing the rope becomes very, very significant. That's why we sing about him. That's why we open this book and read about him. Because in him we have life. Um, in him we know we're secure. Luther, Martin Luther, God that nailed the thesis to the door of the Catholic Church, says this about this passage. Um, he says that the law does not make you better, but worse. That you may be humbled, bruised, and broken. And by this, you may be driven to seek grace. And so to come to the blessed seed, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's good. Um, I read church history books in, in the seminary class right now. Read church history books about revival and about the great awakening and about people hearing God, longing for God, about the preaching of God's word. And uh, people often, there's all these stories that people would cry out to God and say, God, what must I do to be saved? It was all over the place in the revivals. God, what must I do to be saved? Because outside of Christ, they learn they're under condemnation in the law, and so they cry out to God, God, what must I do to be saved? Men and women crying out to God, God, save me, I need you. But it seems like today, men and women don't often cry out to God to be saved because there's so much preoccupation with self-image and self-worth and self-love. Uh, rebuilding a life on humility found in Christ is unpopular. And this is basically what Paul's saying. Like your works, they don't, they don't save you. Um, the modern sort of thought of how to get well in society and life is love yourself. Gotta love yourself before you love anyone else. Anyone ever heard that? Anyone ever said that? I'm just kidding. No one's heard that. Great. I'll cross this part out of my... Just talking to no one in here. Okay. What's odd to me is this whole idea of self-love. It sounds great. It sounds like, oh my goodness, that sounds wonderful. I need to learn to love myself. That's the definition of narcissism. Loving yourself first and foremost is the definition of a narcissistic behavior. You would think that in this day and age, uh, narcissism would be considered a great vice that would be reviled in the world. But in fact, in today's day and age, it seems to be the most ultimate virtue. And we are drawn to it. We love it. The, we, will keep, wanna, we wanna scroll and see more of it. Pick whoever you want. The Bible says that no one is good, no, not one. And the law and religion is not a ladder to climb, but the law is a mirror by which we see ourselves most clearly. The fourth thing Galatians tells us, verses 23 and 24, is that law and that mirror is a harsh, harsh tutor. Uh, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned till the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we may be justified. The, 
justified by faith. The purpose of the law is to shut us up, to have a tutor next to us because we couldn't figure out on our own. We're like a little kid that needed to have a guardian walking along with us to make sure we didn't trip and fall, make sure we didn't misstep, make sure we didn't miss the boat. And the tutor is always saying, stop that and smacking your hand with a ruler. That's the purpose of the law. It is a harsh, harsh tutor and he's constantly course correcting you and smacking you along the way. That's the law. But here's what faith does. Fifth and final thing. Faith brings radical change. Verses 25 through 29. But now, faith has come. The tutor's gone. It's no longer needed. Jesus has come. Faith has come. And you're no longer under a guardian. You don't have to have a little tutor. For in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. I love this. This is so helpful. Um, I, know all, I know that's been a lot, and there's a lot of stuff in there. And the kids are like totally glassed. But here's the last thing. This is really helpful. Um, you don't need a tutor anymore. Um, why? God the Father in Jesus now treats you like a grown-up. You don't need the tutor anymore. You have Jesus Christ. He's in you. You're united with him through faith. And so you, can, you now know. You can figure it out. That's why the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Now go. You have all that you need now. You don't need a tutor smacking you on the, on the wrist when you mess up. You have the Holy Spirit of God and dwelt within you. You can now go. And God says in this verse, now grow up in the faith. Live the life you were meant to live based on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that you were raised with him. It would be like um, if I went off to college and I kept calling my mom, mom, what time's lunch? She'd be like, I don't know, figure it out. Just go get lunch. Like, go to the dining hall and get lunch. You don't have to call me every time you need to go eat lunch. You're not a kid anymore. You don't need mommy around. You don't need your tutor or guardian around telling you what to do. God says, grow up. And I hear this a lot. I know I'm getting a little fiery in today's message, but <laughs> hey, it's spring break. Hardly anyone's here. It's fine. Um, uh, I hear this a lot in uh, a lot of people, kind of, kind of out of youth ministry, out of college ministry, and they're kind of growing up, and they get jobs, and they have a lot of responsibility all of a sudden, and then kids come, and then marriage, and then stresses and hardships, and I hear a lot of, I don't know, I just don't, I don't feel God like I used to. I don't sense him like I used to. And I'm not saying that this excuses this away, but here's what I think God may be doing in a lot of our lives, and he does it in different seasons all along the way. When you maybe feel some of those seasons in your life, I do not believe it as God has abandoned you, that God has walked away from you. I believe God is teaching us to grow up in the faith and to say, you don't need to bank your faith on uh, all of these different feel-goods that you used to have when you were little, but you're growing up. You're learning what it means to love and be rooted into the family of God and press in even when it's hard and even when life hits you, but you keep coming back because that's love and commitment. And I believe that this is what Paul is helping us understand, that God is helping us grow up. Um, God's placed us in this new family. 
And how did we get here? Paul says we've been baptized into Christ. This is a huge theological thing. Our union with Christ. It's the heart of the New Testament message that we are not just, um, we are not just listening to nice, fun things about Jesus, but we are united with him in his death and resurrection. 163 times in Paul's letters, he tells us we are in Christ. That is a brand new thought. Before the New Testament, no one said that. We're Americans. We don't say, uh, I'm in George Washington. And he could, that would just be weird. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Like, he's dead. No one, like, no one says that about anyone else. Paul, over and over and over and over and over again, 163 times, in fact, says, I'm in Christ. That's a brand new thought. That's our union with Christ. That's what anchors us in. So we don't cling to a remote historic figure long, long ago that lived a great life and we honor him. Uh, We serve and live and breathe uh, a living Christ who is in us and with us all along the way. How do we show it? Last thing. There is neither Jew, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is nor male nor and female. For you are all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs, according to that great promise. This is Paul, just brilliant argument. You want to know the way you show this? This amazing grace, this union with Christ? It means that here in this divided Bible belt kind of world we live in, there's no second-class neighborhoods in the kingdom of God. This is a place, and it's not saying that um, your ethnic background doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't say that you being a man or a woman doesn't matter anymore. It just says that we are all now equal co-heirs in the kingdom of God and the way we show a lost, divided, angry, narcissistic world that Jesus is real and Jesus rules and reigns is that anyone can come in here and take part in it. Anyone. And we don't look down on people because of how much money they do or don't make. We don't look down on anyone because of the tone or pigment of their skin. We don't discriminate against people because you are male or female. We say the Lord Jesus Christ has come and he, by his grace and grace alone now, gives me the kingdom of heaven and I want more and more and more people and the world looks in at the great supposed, what is supposed to happen, unity in diversity in the kingdom of God in the church and would say, that's amazing. I want to be a part of that. So Paul says, um, it's for everyone. So we are to show up. We are to love one another. We are to serve one another. We are to be united to one another, no matter what we look like and where we've come from. And it's only in the church that that can truly happen and thrive. And that's what makes it so special. All under the banner of the blood of Jesus and his powerful resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you um, 
for your word, God, how it just corrects us. Lord, we thank you for the law even, that it lifts the lid on who we really are and just shows us our great need for a savior. God, I pray for any in here that might not know you. God, I pray that you would convict them of their sin, but God, you wouldn't keep them there, but you would show them the great mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who knew that person who went to a cross and bore their sin on his body on the tree and didn't stay dead, but went in a tomb and rose again in power and now grants to that person his righteousness in their stead, everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. And God, I pray that we collectively would know that we are now brothers and sisters, no matter what we look like, no matter how old we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter our background, no matter um, any of those things. But our great gospel witness to the world would be our unity in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Do that in our midst. We beg of you, God. We don't want to play games. We don't want to be a country club church. We don't want to be ineffective for your kingdom. We want to be used of you, by you, for you, for your glory and your name's sake. Amen.